0: Well, they left you a few, Chris. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Isn't it just wonderful that there are children found in a place of worship like this? It's just such such a blessing. Okay. So let's just bring our children uh, to the Lord and those who are teaching and those who are helping, and also uh, commit, Chris. Gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, you have given us these children. We thank you for each and every one. We thank you, Lord, for our new babies. We thank you, Lord, as they grow. We thank you, Lord, for each and every one. And Lord, as they go off to the lessons, we just pray, Lord, that the wonderful truths of your holy word uh, will be theirs this day. We pray that the teachers will have that clear understanding that they can share at that right level oh lord and that those who are helping will be patient and kind and understanding this day so we commit all our children and the grown-ups to you and lord we thank you for bringing chris here safely we thank you lord for many years of, of faithful christian ministry and uh, lord we uh, we know that you've laid a word on his heart and we pray that he will have today that freedom Uh, to share that word with us. And Lord, we ask that we would have ears uh, that would listen. We would have a heart and a mind that is open and receptive to the truths. So Lord, we commit Christ to you and ourselves in the Saviour's name. Amen. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Good morning. Good to be back with you again. I always look forward to my visits to Paynton, which are normally in in August, This thing seem to work out, and usually it's quite sunny, but today, well, a bit of a bit of a damp journey down from Martock, which is where I live, just north of Yeovil in Somerset. I'm normally here with my wife, but she sends her apologies today, because she's got a broken foot, so um, she's wearing this big boot thing, so I've got to be especially careful I don't upset her, because it could... Give me a nasty bruise on the leg. But um, she sends her smile, which I won't try and impersonate, but um, she sends her greetings and uh, is sorry she can't be here today. It is a privilege to have children in our churches. It really is. We're, we're blessed as you are uh, in Martok with a really healthy number of young children, young people, and they are a blessing. And there's so many churches in our country today who will be meeting as we are, but with no children at all. And we've got a couple of those churches in our village. No children at all. I'd find that really depressing, but it's a great joy to have little ones and young people amongst us. I really do feel the Lord's laid this on my heart this morning, this this talk, and I'm not really sure entirely why, except I hope it will be an encouragement and a blessing to everybody. But I, I didn't finally make up my mind on, on what to bring this morning until yesterday. It's very helpful when churches say this is what we'd like you to to speak about, and tonight we're, we're looking at the Passover. That's the passage I've been asked to talk about this evening, but this morning uh, I had the freedom to, to settle on what I felt I should bring, and this is what I'm going to talk about. So we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, for some of you, this is a very familiar passage. I'm going to read from verse 3 as far as verse 9. I'm not going to preach on it as such in, in the sense of working through it verse by verse or anything like that, but it's kind of a launchpad for some things that I want to talk to you about For a little while this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. It's headed up. Born again to a living hope. And Peter writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable. Undefiled even though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Some of you may know that that I love words, Not everybody loves words. Some people love numbers. Some people love pictures. I love words. It means I like things like books, real books. I've got a good library at home, hundreds of books. I love word games, crosswords. I love quotations, clever sayings that that, that people come out with. And uh, I want to share with you a few of my favourite ones that I've recently added to my quotation file on my computer. Billy Wilder, the filmmaker and producer, said of a rival... Producer, He has Van Gogh's ear for music. I like that. That's, that's a clever insult. Some people would say, I've got Van Gogh's ear for music because I like country music and not everybody likes that. But that's a clever insult. American political commentator, a lady called Molly Evans, once said of someone she knew, he was so narrow-minded he could see her through a keyhole with both eyes. Oh, that's cutting, isn't it? Could see through a keyhole with both eyes. On a religious note, the entertainer Shane Ritchie, many of you will know him, he said this I don't believe in reincarnation, and I didn't believe it when I was a hamster. <laughs> oh, clever. Need to think about that. I like it. But I read this just recently in a more serious mood a man called Peter Kreeft who's what we call an apologist for the Christian faith. That doesn't mean to say he's forever apologizing for Christianity. It means he defends the Christian faith against its critics. And uh, he's actually a Catholic by persuasion, but he's a tremendous writer. And he said this, God gives us just enough evidence so that those who want him can have him. I think that's brilliant. And that, that kind of grabbed hold of my brain and just just wouldn't let go. God gives us just enough evidence so that those who want him can have him. I think he's hit the nail right on the head. Part of God's genius, it seems to me, is that he makes it intellectually possible for us to be total atheists. And there are a lot of people who prove that in our country today. Whilst at the same time, God makes it absolutely possible to know for sure That he's completely real. That takes some doing. For some people to be convinced atheists. For some people to be convicted and and absolutely fervent uh, believers in God. God makes it equally possible to go to either of those extremes. Now why would he do that? Well maybe because he wants the people he created to be free to choose him. To choose to trust him. To choose to love him. To choose to serve him, to, su- to choose to surrender their lives to him or not. In other words, to give us a real choice. As Kreeft put it, so that those who want him can have him. But those who don't can keep him out of their lives. As I pondered that comment, I thought of three other things that God's also given us enough of. In order that we might believe if we want to. So, here, very quickly this morning, are four good reasons for not merely believing in God's existence, but also for wanting to trust Him and wanting to love Him and wanting to serve Him. And the first of them really springs out of Kreef's phrase, which is He gives us enough evidence. He gives us enough evidence. Here is an irrefutable fact we are here. <clears throat> Have you noticed that? We are here. Do you believe that? We are here. Some people will say, no, 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 this is all just imaginary. (laughs) You can't really believe that you're here. It's just kind of an illusion. I can't accept that. According to the statistics, there are currently 7.6 billion other people like us currently living on planet Earth. Fully alive, fully functioning, fully thinking people. So how did we get here? How did the world get here? Ultimately, how did the physical universe of which was such an infinitesimally tiny part, how did it get here? Now, sweeping away millennia of science for the sake of time, the answer boils down to one thing. An uncaused cause. An uncaused cause. In other words, something which has always been. Has always been. Now that is a conclusion With which the vast majority of both scientists and theologians would happily agree that for us to be here today, there has to have been, if you go back far enough, an uncaused cause. Either something or someone, either matter or being, had to have existed forever because nothing produces nothing. Now, that's difficult to get your head around, but both of those answers, whether it's a something or it's a someone, both of them involve a massive leap of faith. Both of them. Neither are scientifically provable because we can't go back far enough to check whether that is the way it was. So they're not provable, either scientifically uh, by themselves. But philosophically, there's a world of difference between whether it was something or someone that has always been there. There's a world of difference. For if it was a piece of inanimate, that is, dead matter that was first on the scene, then there's no ultimate purpose, really, for anything that has arisen since. No purpose for the universe or anything else that currently exists. And not only that, but neither is there any reliable moral reference point by which we can live our lives and live them in freedom and in happiness. Whereas if God was first on the scene. There's both. There's both a purpose for our being here, and there's a moral reference point that we can learn from and live our lives by. Not only that, but it also means that this universe and this world, including all those furry animals and tiny little things that Derek was talking about, and these bodies of ours, were not just merely thrown together by way of a cosmic accident plus eons of time, but rather were carefully, even lovingly designed. I put my hand up for the butterflies. <coughs> I think they're amazing creatures. You put one on a set of your kitchen scales, they wouldn't move it, would they? They're so light. The monarch butterfly emigrates or migrates 2,000 miles. Can you imagine that? 2,000 miles. It hardly weighs anything. Incredible. How does it know to do that? Who taught it to do that? Amazing. Where on earth can you find a man-made machine that can even begin to compete with a human eye? To quote one of my scientific sources, the complete processing of even a single nerve cell from the retina would require the solution of around 500 simultaneous differential equations 100 times. Bear in mind there are 10 million or more such cells interacting with each other in complex ways Within our eyes, incredible. We don't even need to think about it. I look around this room and my eyes are focusing at two feet, four feet, ten feet, twenty feet, whatever it is, and it just does it. I don't even need to think about it. All those equations happening simultaneously, just like that. Don't even need to stop and think about it. Charles Darwin said this, to suppose that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd. In the highest possible degree. (laughs) Agreed? (laughs) Absurd. (laughs) To think that these eyes that we carry around in our heads could have come about in that sort of random way. The Bible's opening sentence says In the beginning, God created. Not chance, (coughs) not luck, not time, but God created. Little wonder then that one of the New Testament writers, a man called Paul, said this, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. What does the vastness of the universe tell us about God's power? I don't have any problem at all with how many billions of stars they're going to tell us tomorrow there is in the universe. Because they're kind of changing their figures, you know, almost by the day these days. You know, I don't care how many billions there are, because God actually is bigger than any of that in terms of his power. And the vastness of the universe tells me that God is an all-powerful God. What does the incredible variety of living things tell us about God's creativity and his genius for variety? I look around this room, every face is different. If you were to press your finger into an ink and put on a piece of paper, the pattern it produces is different for you. Wow, God is incredible in terms of the variety that he creates. What is the way in which everything works so brilliantly? And they reckon if they tilted this earth by, on its axis by just you know a degree or something, then the whole thing would break down. Why does it work so brilliantly? What does that tell us about God's knowledge? What does even the average human conscious tell us about conscience, tell us about God's character. The fact that automatically most of us do the right thing most of the time. Where does that come from? What does the presence of human love suggest about divine love? Where else would that come from? A piece of inanimate matter? Matter? Of course, I've barely touched the surface in terms of supporting arguments for God's existence, but nonetheless, there's enough evidence for those who want him to have him and to believe in him with absolutely integrity in terms of your intellect, intellectual integrity. is not compromised by believing in God because there is so much evidence that he is there. But hold on. There's more, because not only does our very existence suggest the possibility of God providing just enough evidence for believing, but the remarkable existence of the Bible, one of the world's most ancient texts, provides us surely with enough revelation to believe in God. And the word revelation means unveiling or telling. By anyone's standards, the Christian Bible is a remarkable book. I've been studying it. For a long time I became a Christian when I was about seven and uh, I've been reading the Bible for 55 years and if you're clever you can work out how old I am today I wish it were otherwise the other way around but it isn't that's the way it is but you know the Bible is unique it's virtually unique in terms of its longevity and particularly its survival in the face of numerous attacks There have been a number of people through history who have sworn to themselves that they were going to get rid of the Bible once and for all. It's never happened. The Bible's more popular today and more widespread than any other book on the planet. It's unique in its composition because the Bible was put together by 40 different authors, but not just 40 different authors. People who spoke three different languages lived on three different continents. It's unique in terms of its reliability, uh, particularly in terms of what it calls prophecy or that is predictions about the future because so many of its predictions have already come true. It's unique in its translation. I know a number of translators. Uh, <clears throat> I know a couple who worked in Chad for a long time, translating scripture into the language of the Indan people. I know a lady right now who's working uh, in, in Chad, but also thinking about moving to the Democratic Republic of Congo because she wants people to be able to read the Bible in their own language. The Bible is now available, the whole text of it, in 670 language, languages. The New Testament is, is available in a further 1521 languages. Very, various selections and stories from the Bible uh, are available in 1121 more languages which all adds up to the fact that currently as of this moment something like 150 million out of 7.6 billion haven't got access to the Bible in their own language just 150 million out of 7.6 billion can't read any of the Bible in their own language that's incredible that means nearly 700 nearly 7.5 billion, do have access to Scripture. That's remarkable. There's no other book like that in the world. And the reason that Christians are so determined to make God's word so widely available is because they claim that's what it is. It's the breathed-out word of God. It's not the words merely of human beings. It's the words of God. It's a book that records his words, reveals his character, and documents his work, and also declares his future plans. And there are some things in the Bible that have not yet come to pass but are beginning to come to pass and will eventually come to pass. If you look at the track record of stuff that already has been predicted and come to pass, it's an amazing book. And the Bible explains how we can become children of God. Let me read you a tiny selection of God's words about himself as recorded in various books of the Bible. First of all, his promise to a man called Isaac. In Genesis chapter 26, he said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. He's a personal God. He wants to walk through life with us. His word to a man called Moses, who was the leader of the Israelite people for many years, the one who led them uh, with God's help out of slavery in Egypt. And uh, God said to Moses, Moses, about Israel, they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. God is amongst us right now. That's what we believe. That's why we gather in places like this, not because he lives in buildings, but because he lives in us. And when we come together, God is manifestly present in those groups of his people. He lives amongst us. His word to Isaiah the prophet, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you who directs you in the way you should go. And I guess there are many people here who could give testimony this morning as to how God has led them in their lives, Uh, have led them to their lifelong partner. That certainly happened with me. Led them to the work that they should do with their lives. Led them to the very house they should live in. He's a God who works with us, who interacts with us. His word to Jeremiah, I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord. Christians are people who not just know a little bit about God, but will claim to know God personally for themselves. He's a God who has spoken. He's a God who has told us what we would otherwise never know. Because we couldn't think him out. We couldn't kind of use our imagination to work out reliably what he's like. He's way beyond us in terms of his power and majesty and holiness and everything And it needs him to communicate with us, if we're ever going to know anything true about him, reliably. And he's done that. He's done that through the Bible. He's done it through a person. He's done it through Jesus. Jesus came and set foot on our planet. God in flesh, the Bible calls him. And Jesus has given us a living, breathing picture of what God is like. The Bible says of Jesus that he was in very nature God. It also says that he radiates God's glory. You know, I'd love to have been alive. I'd love to have been one of those disciples who actually spent time with him. I'm sure there would have been something so different about Jesus as a person. He attracted people to him by his very words, by his very character. The, The glory of God radiated out from him. He expresses the very character of God, says the Bible. In other words, when we look at Jesus... We see the perfect revelation of God. In fact, Jesus said of himself, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, has seen God. And again, he said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's one of the mysteries of the person of Jesus and the person of God. Well, i barely scratched the surface, but I want to move on because I want to keep you here all morning. Just enough evidence. The world that we're a part of, the bodies that we live in, the things that we can see. Just enough evidence. Enough revelation. The existence of this book that won't go away. This book that claims to be the breathed out word of God. Here's another thing. I I suggest that if we really want to know him, God will give us enough faith for that. He'll give us enough faith. There's no escaping the importance of faith when it comes to all things Christian. No point trying to play it down. It's, it's a vitally important thing. And what faith is, is a complete trust in something or somebody. Complete confidence in somebody. If you came to me and asked for a job in, in the church that I work in uh, and pastor in, in Martock, and, and you came and you said, well, this is who I am, this is my background, these are my qualifications, this is my experience, and I was drawn to you and wanted you to work for me, I would say, I have complete faith in you, come and work with us. It's a confidence in somebody or something. The Bible's own definition puts it like this, to have faith is to be sure of the things that we hope for. It's to be certain of things that we cannot see. We can't see God's presence here this morning, but I'm absolutely no for a fact that he's here. I've got faith to believe that. To trust in a God we can't see or prove. To believe in a saviour who lived in an ancient time, died in a far off place and allegedly rose from the dead. To accept the idea of an indwelling spirit who can empower our daily living. All of that requires a degree of faith. So what do we do if we don't have it? What do we do if we have no faith? What if we simply cannot believe in something that, that can't be proved? Good question. What if I have no faith? which the first thing to say is that actually all of us have a degree of faith. All of us. Let me show you what I mean. Just just put your hands up. I know this is embarrassing for some. You don't like putting your hands up in church. But just put your hands up just even slightly if you tested the weight-bearing ability of your chair before you sat on it this morning. Didn't think I'd see any hands go up. None of us would do that, but, you know, we're people of faith. Your faith in human nature gave you reason to trust the chair that you sat on because you thought these good people at great parks aren't going to put out wonky seats. They're not going to put out chairs that are going to collapse the moment I sit on them. And you took a look at the chair and you thought, what's a pretty well-built chair, doesn't look as though it's cracked or broken, I'll sit on that. So, you know, you trusted it to hold you up, and it did. And that's a very trivial example. Mind you, if you hadn't tested it and it did let you down, you wouldn't have been risking very much. You know, you might have just bruised your thighs, you fell down, might have risked a moment of embarrassment, but nothing more than that. You weren't taking a big risk, were you? What about stepping on an aeroplane? Just think of the number of things that you're putting your faith in when your very life depends on it. Every time you step on a plane, your life depends on a number of things. It depends on the strength of the fuselage because that plane is going to come under tremendous pressure when it gets up in the air. It's going to depend on the reliability of those engines. Okay, if one gets knocked out, it can still fly on the other one, but what if the other one goes? It It relies on the condition of the wiring that's running throughout the aircraft. It it relies on the skill of the air traffic controllers who get you safely into the air and get you safely down at the other end. It it actually depends on the health and the competency and the sobriety of the pilot. Who wants a drunk pilot when you're travelling in an aeroplane? Do we check any of that? No, we don't. We take it by faith. Some would say, I take it for granted, but actually we're taking it by faith. And actually that's how it is with our death. Because who of us here this morning have ever been able to prove what happens to people when they die? Have Any of you been able to prove what happens to someone when they die? I mean, is that it? End of? Or do we all have a spirit that carries on? after our physical death, somewhere, somehow? How can we prove that, one way or the other? And the answer is, we can't. We opt for one answer or another answer. We just die and that's it. Or we don't die, we carry on. We accept one answer or the other by faith. Now as a Christian, I've put my faith in the saving work of God the Son at the cross, the amazing Grace of God the Father in sending Jesus, the ongoing guarantee of the Holy Spirit who's at work in my life. I've put my faith in the fact that I believe Jesus rose again and conquered death. And has actually promised me an ongoing existence after my physical demise on this planet. And I need to tell you that even that faith was the gift of God and is actually freely available to those who truly want it. Because the Bible says that were saved by faith and that not of ourselves lest any of us should boast it's the gift of god enough faith enough evidence enough revelation enough faith and finally can i say this more than enough love here's another offering from my quotation collection a man called el McGuire, i never heard of him before but i liked his quotation he once quipped the only mystery in life is why the kamikaze pilots wore helmets That is a mystery. It's a bit strange, isn't it? If they were deliberately going to crash their planes, why bother with the crash helmet? As I see it, a far greater mystery is why the Lord of heaven and earth should should so love me and you. I mean, that really is a puzzle. Why should the God who needs nothing, who's complete in himself, as none of us are, why should he love me and you? According to his own word, he absolutely does, in spite of our unloveliness. One of Jesus' closest friends was a man called John, and he said this, God showed his love for us by sending his son into the world that we might have life through him. This is what love is. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the means by which our sins are forgiven. In other words, there's a sense in which God just can't help himself. He just loves us. Not because we're lovely, not because we're even lovable, but because He is love and His love just pours out towards us. I see a a very faint reflection of this in the way that I love my newest granddaughter. She was born in Canada four months ago. I haven't seen her yet, only on a screen. Two weeks' time, I'm going to meet her, <laughs> which is great because my family from Canada are coming over. But, but I just love that little girl. Never met her. Can't really explain it to you. It's not something I had to summon up. When my son rung and said, oh, we've got another little girl. Didn't have a name for six weeks. Poor kid, poor kid. She, you know, she got dedicated to church, and she didn't have a name. We were so frustrated as her grandparents, but that's, that's just their thing. She's called Everdeen. And uh, I just love her. I'm looking forward to meeting her. That love was there when she arrived. I just knew I loved that little girl. And I knew that I was always love her. And God loves me. (laughs) And God loves you, he says. He loves every person in this room, he loves everybody in the Bay, he loves everybody in the UK, he loves every person on this planet. He simply loves us, whatever our faith, whatever our colour, whatever our gender, whatever our background, whatever language we speak, whatever our character's like, and right now he wants you to know that love, and he wants you to believe it and receive it if you never have before. But, says a pastor and writer called Frederick Buchner, because God's love is uncoercive and treasures our freedom. We're free to resist that love. We're free to deny it and crucify it finally, which we do again and again. That is our terrible freedom, which love refuses to overpower. God's not going to twist your arm up behind your back to make you love him. He wants love that is free. And that takes us full circle back to what Peter Kreef says, which is that God gives us just enough evidence so that those who really want him can have him, can know him, can love him. Well, I was sat at my desk one Thursday afternoon just a few weeks ago when I heard this tremendous bang. I was focusing on my computer screen, I was doing some work, and I was sort of really taken up with what was going on. I heard this incredible bang. It sounded a little bit like a gunshot, and it also sounded very close, and it was initially very frightening. So I got up and I looked out of the window. Now, my study is upstairs in our house, and the front little bit of our house sticks out below the level of my office window, and there's a little bit of sloping roof. And there on the roof tiles was a very wobbly looking collared dove. No doubt wondering what on earth had hit it. And here's the impression it made on my window. Can you see the wing going up there to the left and the other wing to the right and that big blob is its body. That was the impression that that dove made on my window. I'm surprised it didn't come right through it. It made that impression. You can see it so clearly. Now... Why didn't the dove see the glass in my window? Can I suggest three possible reasons, and in a minute you'll see where I'm going with this. Perhaps the first reason it didn't see the glass was because of the speed it was moving. The glass was right in front of it, but it didn't see it because it was probably moving at around 25 miles an hour, because that's how fast doves normally fly, 25 miles an hour. Secondly, it probably didn't see the glass because its eyes were focused on what lay beyond the glass instead of the glass itself. The empty room in front of it, the empty space. And number three, it probably didn't notice the glass because the glass was clear and clean, so it looked like there was nothing there at all. Completely transparent. And so one poor collared dove ended up with rather severe headache. Now, it did fly away eventually, so it was okay. But as I thought about that collared dove, as I thought about why it hit my window, I saw a parallel, really, with how it is, I think, with people and God. See, some people these days live life at such a fast pace that they haven't time to see if there's a God who greatly loves them or not. Nor do they have the time to stop and think about the revelation that God has made readily available to us through the Bible and through Jesus. You haven't the time. Life's going so fast. There's so much to do. Other people seem to be really focused on what is ahead. They have an ambition in life. They have something that they're aiming at, and they're so distracted by that. And by all that the world has to offer them, the bigger house, the better car, the the more exciting holiday, that they don't see what's in front of their face. And for others, maybe, the fact that God can't actually be seen because he is so holy and so pure, and he's a spiritual being, That's enough to stop them looking, to make it all seem like make-believe, enough to convince themselves that he isn't really there at all. But the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. The Bible says, taste and see that God is good. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Seek and you will find whoever believes in me. She'll have eternal life. A few months ago, a link to a little video landed in my email inbox, and I followed up the link and I watched the video. And straight away, I knew I had to share this little video whenever I had the opportunity to show it to other people. It's just one young lady's story. But I find it very moving, and I hope that you find it moving too. And if you'd like to know more about finding this God that I've been talking about, I'll be at the door at the end, hopefully with a cup of coffee in my hand. And I'd love to chat to you further about this God who is there, who loves you, and wants you to love him, and has made it possible for you to come into a relationship with him. So I'm going to finish with this little video. It's called Chloe's Story. Here she is.
2: I was really angry with Christians because I just thought, like, how dare you believe in a higher power who is responsible for this? My name's Chloe, and this is my story. I come from a non Christian family, and um, so growing up, I used to pray and worship to this Chinese goddess, um, all the while having the mindset of an atheist. So in my in year seven my form tutor was a Christian, a uh, Christian lady, and I used to go out of my way to annoy her um, and mock her faith. And then I'd say that in year eleven was the most atheist I've ever been in my entire life, after finding out that my brother had suddenly passed away. Um, yeah, that was a that was a really tough moment for me. Um, I mean, needless to say, like my heart was very hard towards the idea of the existence of God. And I thought that if there were a God, he'd be totally unloving, selfish, uncaring. I became close to, very close to a couple of Christian classmates. and um, We became so close that they felt that they could openly share their faith with me, um, despite my opinions and... Um, the only reason as to why I even let them in in the first place and actually opened up these conversations was because they genuinely invested in our friendship. They really genuinely cared about my opinions and um, so I really cared about them as my friends. Um, so one day, they invited me along to a CU meeting, so I reluctantly came along. And it was the first time I'd ever read a part of the Bible. And they were looking at the book of Job. And it really, I felt like it was just like perfect timing almost because I was really going through a lot of pain and it really opened up my eyes. It really put my own situation into perspective that despite the surface appearance, God isn't responsible for suffering. He is sovereign over it. And that really hit a spot in me because just because of how warm how I was, in believing before that God was unloving or uncaring or selfish when the greatest demonstration of God's love was right before my eyes and what he did on that cross I came out of the scene meeting asked my two Christian friends all the questions that I had in my head and they really invested time into trying to answer these questions for me I, I had a lot of mixed emotions and I felt like if this were all true I'd want that And so, yeah, I started to pray that life-changing prayer, um, that God would come into my life and just take hold of it. So about a year after I became a Christian, um, word got round in my old school, and I found out through my friends that my year seven teacher was just completely overjoyed, um, massively shocked, (laughs) um, because she hadn't stopped praying for me since I was in year seven, that one day I would give my life to Christ.
1: Which is such an answer to prayer, and um, I'm so grateful for that. I wasn't planning to say anything after that. I was—I've been moved again, actually, by that story. But I think for those of us that know Christ, it—it it says two things. One is that. One of the reasons that young lady came to faith was because that teacher just kept faithfully praying for her right from year seven, right through university. And God answered those prayers and worked in that young lady's life. But I think the other reason was that those two friends just loved her. They just showed that young lady who had very different beliefs to them. They just showed God's love practically to her. They invested time in her. They listened to her. And I think that's a real challenge to us, who already know Christ, that we find time to invest in people for their own sake, but then through that relationship to be able to show in some practical way the love of God, so that if ever the opportunity comes, we can share why it is that we are as we are, and we do as we do. May the Lord bless you as you think about that this morning. Amen.